0: So, Stephanie, you're our co-host for the evening. We'll start from Hebrews chapter 6. Can you read for us from verse 1 to verse 3?
1: Okay. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the de- of resurrection of the dead, and of th- and of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits.
0: Okay, thank you. So you can see right off the bat here that the writer is saying, "I want you to stop being stuck in one place spiritually, right? I want you to go on. I want you to push through. I want you to to begin to." Press into what is next in your Christian life. Now, the reason he part of the reason why he listed these uh, pillars of the doctrine of Christ, which we spent about ten weeks um, discussing just recently, is that remember that the way he concluded chapter five, which we must go back to to understand the context, like we always say, um, these letters were not written in chapters, so we need to be careful with the chapter divisions. The same line of thought that ended in the last three verses of chapter five is picked up on in chapter six, verse one. He says from chapter five, verse 12, that, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised, to discern both good and evil, right? So we, so, the, so the writer sees immaturity as the consequence of your diet, your spiritual diet. The quality of your spiritual diet even is going to impact on the quality of your faith. And if it impacts on the quality of your faith, it's going to impact on the quality of your growth or your progress in grace. You see, Jesus, when he responded to the temptation in the wilderness, he said to Satan in Luke chapter 4, verse 4, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, the proceeding word of God. And you see, we don't consume the word that comes from God at the same levels, at the same measures, at the same intensities, at the same dimensions. We are meant to go on to deeper things in God, because our calling is as deep as God, since it proceeded from him. It means that there is always food in God for our souls that we can find. So if we, if we rally around milk, if we circle around milk forever, we will remain static. Milk is good. It's necessary that you know, for example, the things that are yours in Christ, what you might call new creation realities. Because when you come into Christ, the first thing you're invited to do is not to work for anything. When you come into Christ, the first thing you're, invite, you're invited to do is to sit. Is to sit and, and take stock of what he has done for you. Because many things that you're going to need to come into in the kingdom are tied to your understanding and your appreciation of the things that he has done for you. So it's necessary that you sit. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, right? Right? that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God for this is your only reasonable act of service. He's saying that I want you to present your bodies, but I'm, I'm staking my claim for presenting your bodies on your understanding of the mercies of God, which is why he spent Romans chapter 9, 10, 11, expounding on, on the mercy of God that was displayed in the election of grace. He wants you to understand that it was by mercy, that mercy is a foundational principle of your salvation. Because if you don't get it, if you don't understand the cost of mercy, the, the intensity of mercy, the glory of mercy, you will not find reason to offer yourselves. Right? So that's the first thing that the Christian is invited to do, to sit on milk. That's what Peter advised. He said as newborn babes, desire earnestly the milk of the word that you might grow thereby but you see all of us still drink milk despite the fact that we're adults it's just that it's not the only thing that we drink and it's possible that we can keep circling around my sins are forgiven i am i am xyz in christ and we don't go on to maturity so it's necessary that that we leave the fundamentals we build on them like we did in the past 10 weeks but we leave them and go on to mature stuff Now, the writer also thinks, or highlights here, that another reason for immaturity is the lack of spiritual exercise. So, the same way that if you have a baby, as much as you love the little one, right, you need to expose the little one to life. You need to send them to school, even though the act of doing that is probably going to expose them to other things. But it's necessary that they exercise their mental prowess, right? It's necessary that they exercise their mental capacity. If not, they're never going to develop. The same way it is with your spirit. The exercise of our spirit, friends, is in, is in godliness. That's what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, that godliness is profitable both in this world and in the age to come. So he's saying that as you exercise yourself unto godliness, as you make plans to do the will of God, then you're going to learn discernment. So the first layer of discernment is the food you eat, <laughs> the spiritual diet eat did you know that spiritual diet is tied to discernment did you know that or discernment is tied to spiritual diet remember in the, the verse that you're going to hear a lot this Christmas period as the Christmas period comes along Isaiah chapter 7 verse 10 moreover the Lord spake again to air saying ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God ask it either in the depth or in the height above But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Yes, verse 14 is where I was going. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. It says that curds and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil. And choose the good. I I want to stop here and ask us like, how is spiritual diet tied to discernment? How is the spiritual food you eat tied to your ability to discern? Because when you want to teach Christians about discernment, when you want to build yourself in discernment, you must begin with spiritual diet. You must start there. But how does spiritual diet translate to discernment? May I? Yes.
2: Okay, from my understanding, um, spiritual diet feeds our perception. Okay. It feeds our senses. The senses through which we perceive and interact with the world around us and also with which we interact with the Lord God Almighty. So um, if we are feeding off of, say, for example, the wrong thing, our perception is going to be fed the wrong way. It's just like indoctrination. It's like a child who is grown growing up and all the content all he or she has been hearing and learning are vulgar things. You understand? Vulgar things. The child will only be seeing the world through a vulgar lens. That is all they see. Even in a situation that there is nothing vulgar there, they will see something there. So it's, it's, it's so the person who has who is fed with the right say the right um, spiritual diet they will be able to see things clearly for what they truly are they will mm-hmm. they will not be even if the enemy disguises himself as an angel of light for example because they are fed right they'll be able to see through the charade yeah
0: mm-hmm. thank you thank you for that However, in context, we've said that spiritual diet is the word of God here, right? Your answer is correct. Like, spirit, like spiritual diet or any kind of mental diet um, yeah. that, that involves the words we hear helps us to, to recognize truth so that when the force plays out in front of us, because we have trained our minds, we're able to recognize truth. But when it comes to the word of God, Right, as our spiritual diet, it's necessary to realize that the Word of God contains a compendium of the mind of God. It's a compendium of how God thinks, it's a compendium of how God speaks. And the more you expose yourself to the way God thinks, the more you are able to discern things at a basic level. So Jesus was so full of the Word of God that when Satan came to him and said, Turn these stones <laughs> into bread. He, he, he was able to make out in his mind and in his spirit that there's something wrong about this request. There's something wrong about it. It's not the way God speaks because he had filled his mind and his heart with the word of God. The way God speaks is that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. So I don't have a problem making stone into bread, but it's not what God is saying to me at this moment. And if you look through the temptations of Jesus, he was able to respond from the word of God. And so the word of God gives us insights to how God thinks about life, right? What God says about the nature of reality. You know, you might use your intellectual understanding and say that what is so bad about sexual immorality, for example, right? You might do some analysis and say, what is spiritual about this arrangement? The fact that we did not go to a church and put rings on our hands, And say some words, how does like how is this sin different from any any sin? You see, if you think like that, you're actually normal. But it is the word of God that corrects that kind of thinking because the word of God pierces into the nature of reality, like we have always said, right? It goes beyond the surface and it touches the foundations of life. And so, even though by your own natural thinking, you won't have seen something wrong with it but the word of god can adjust your thinking to make you begin to think on god's frequency now of course with time as you walk with god you're you're going to now understand why it is so much of a problem but before you get to that place where your understanding is fruitful is the word of god that will be like a lamp for your feet and a light for your path and that's why the word of god which is the diet we eat is the first layer of discernment a believer (laughs) that is not rich in the word of God will not be rich in discernment. Now, of course, the second and perhaps most significant layer of discernment is discernment by the spirit of God. Because it's possible for something to be true as a statement, but it is not the testimony of the spirit of truth. Right? (laughs) Satan came to Jesus and said that he would give his angels charge over you so that you do not dash your feet against a stone. The statement was true, but now you need to go beyond what is written in the letter. You need to seek the testimony of the Spirit. When that statement landed in your spirit, how did it land? Or perhaps you you may not even have such time to to gauge the statement, but when you fellowship with God earlier in the day or the day before or the 40 days you were in the wilderness, What was he testifying about this thing? So that even if something looks good on the outside, and it looks perfect, and it looks like there's nothing wrong with it, you can receive a superior testimony. And that's the testimony of the spirit of truth. And the writer of Hebrews says, at the end of Hebrews chapter 5, that the only way that that sense is built up is by exercise. So he says that what makes for the mature is not age. Those who are full of age are not those who are old, In physical age, but there are those who by reason of use have exercised their senses. So it means that they've continually exercised their spirit. So you you, you receive a prompting in your spirit to say, do this thing. And then you refuse to do it because you are exercising yourself in godliness. It is in that obedience that you now know that, okay, if this voice comes like this, it's not God. Remember when we did when we did the doctrine of Christ, we said the doctrine of Christ it was not primarily a message. The doctrine of Christ eventually became a message, but it was a life. It was a life that he put on display, John chapter seven. And Jesus said the way to know his doctrine is to make a commitment to do his will. He that does my will will know my doctrine. So this is why he's saying now in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, that we need to leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. But he said that in verse 3, right, that we are going to do it if God permits. And God permitted us 10 weeks ago, or more than that, for 10 weeks, to do the principles of the doctrine of Christ, because we said that for these Hebrews, their problem was the opposite of our problem. Their problem was that they had the foundation and they just couldn't go past it. Our problem is that we skip the foundation and go on to higher things. And because of that, we make a wreck of things. So what I want to do is just to take five minutes to summarize each of these uh, principles of induction of Christ again, before we move on, right? So he says that we should not lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works, right? So we said that when we, when we looked at repentance from dead works, we said there's repentance there and there's dead works. Dead works refers to, in context here, the works of the law. And by that we mean works that are aimed at any acceptance with God. So bringing anything that is like human sacrifice. Because we said that there is no amount of good works that you can do that can end your acceptance with God. Acceptance with God can only be on the basis of the absolute justice of God, right? And the best of our efforts is going to fall short of the absolute justice of God. So to insist that my goodness can earn me favor with God, my my sacrifices can earn me favor with God, the Bible summarizes that as dead works. And this is the dead works in context is the Judaistic um, practices of worship that were included in the Mosaic law. Because even some of the proponents of those practices, David himself said, burnt offerings and sacrifices you have not desired. It's not what God was looking for. Those things were only a picture of the kind of sacrifice to take to deal with the deep problem of sin in the heart of man. God was only trying to tell them that, see, sin is so serious that it's going to take blood. At the end of the day, there is nobody that was <laughs> relying on the sacrifices for their actual salvation. Because when Jesus confronted some of them in John chapter six, they said that they are sons of Abraham and that's enough. And then Jesus decided to change it for them and said, no, if you do not do the works of Abraham, your natural lineage is not enough to any, it uh, uh, gets into the kingdom of God. And we looked at repentance as well. And we said the necessity for repentance was the message of the kingdom. That's the message that God has for you and I, that God had in sending Christ. That was the message that John came preaching. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the message that Jesus also came preaching. If you read Matthew chapter 4, as soon as he left the wilderness, he came preaching the same message that John preached. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we said what it means by the kingdom of God is at hand is that God's value system is coming into the face of the earth. The kingdom refers to a king and his domain. right? The throne of God is coming into the earth. And the throne of God, at at the center of the throne of God is the will of God. So if the throne of God is coming into the earth, it means God is coming with his will, his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his peace, his joy. And the question John was was throwing at his audience was, on what side of this kingdom are you going to be? Because this kingdom has a perspective. It has a will, it has a value system. If the kingdom comes and he finds you on the wrong side of his value system, He told them they were going to be burnt up as chaff, right? And that's why he invited them to repent, which is why repentance remains a present continuous activity for the believer. Repentance is not just to change your mind, even though that is what the actual word means. Repentance means that your perspective, your orientation is in conflict with the orientation of of the throne. And God, in his mercy, allows you to see that disparity, and then you repent you change your mind right and and the proof that you repented is that there's going to be fruits worthy of repentance so it is only that light of god that can trigger true repentance because it will produce those fruits so that even as a christian there are times when you're going to realize that your perspective is not god's perspective or your behavior is not god's behavior. And it calls for repentance. Anyway, that's not our topic for tonight. And then it says faith towards God, right? Faith becomes the foundation of our walking away from from the hold of sin. So while while repentance um, connotes a negative leaving behind of our own effort, faith connotes a positive laying hold on the provision that God has made in His Son. We said that faith is not make believe. Faith is not confess it till you have it. Faith is, is a substance that is born in our hearts by fellowship with the word of God, fellowship with the, with the spirit of God. As we fellowship with God, he plants a seed in our hearts. And that seed enables us to engage him productively so that if you want to be full of faith, spend time fellowshipping with God. That's where faith is going to precipitate from. And then we looked at the doctrine of baptisms. Right. And we said that there were many baptisms in uh, there are a few, not many, a few baptisms in the new covenant. The first one is the baptism of water. And we said that the baptism of water is the answer of a good conscience to a question that God is asking. It's a positional question, which is that in view of what Christ has done for you, in view of the exchange that has happened in the spirit. It's as though you are placed in the dock, right? In a courtroom, in the spirit. And they're saying that you committed certain crimes. Those crimes have been exchanged. Another person has borne it. So what is your answer? What is your response to God, to principalities, to powers, to everyone who cares about your current position, right? Peter says that baptism is just the answer of a good conscience. It's our, it's our response. God is asking a question. And baptism is our answer to that question that yes as I go into this water I identify I identify with the death of Christ and I also as I come out of it I identify with the resurrection of Christ <laughs> but we also said that John who preached and practiced water baptism insisted that it was not enough he said you need another baptism because the moment you step out of that water you're going to realize that even though your spiritual position has changed you still have the same physical body as you had before you entered you still had you still have the same sinful nature as you had so i can make you clean right now but i cannot keep you clean and if you're going to participate in that kingdom you're going to need holy spirit because sometimes when we call it when we refer to him as the holy spirit we de-emphasize the holy aspect of it. That this was what John anticipated in his preaching. That, that, that there's someone who needs to immerse you in Holy Spirit, and it's when he immerses you in Holy Spirit that you can now receive power to walk in newness of life. The thing that the law could not achieve, in that it it did not aid you in achieving it. Now God, through His Holy Spirit, can help you walk in the in the newness of life and everything that comes with that newness of life. And we looked at the laying on of hands, right? We said that the laying on of hands is one of those principles that highlights the the clear dichotomy that these things have between between the spiritual reality and the practical outworking of it. We said if you take away the spiritual reality from the laying on of hands, then all you have is like a customary greeting or a cultural affair. Essentially, so the laying on of hands is for impartation and is for identification. You can ret- you can return to to that message, and we had the resurrection of the dead and the doctrine of eternal judgment. The writer of Hebrews is saying that these are foundations. Even though in our case we discover that these things have become so confused, and the hope that we have in these things is not as they should be. For these Hebrews, that was not the case, right? The, the case was that they kind of, they had been exposed to this stuff before. They had been exposed to this content. But what was missing was that they didn't continue. And I want us to note what it says in verse 3, that this we will do if God permits. If God permits, is a joker that is necessary to interpret what's, what comes next. for us, Okay. So we can go on to what comes next. Now, can you read for us, Stephanie? From verse four to verse
1: eight. Thank you, Joshua. Just a side comment. I mean, in all that list, I didn't see keys to breakthrough. So I was like, wow, these people were very, very, you know, spiritual people. If this <laughs> was the I guess faith fit
0: to qualify as, as a key to breakthrough there.
1: I guess that's the <laughs> emphasis of the church, this spirit. Okay. So verse four to what? Verse eight. Okay, so uh verse four to 8 says. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and bear, bear, well, that word, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned.
0: Okay. Thank you. So this is one of those passages that... You cannot um, theologize away, right? You cannot exige it away. The passage makes it very clear that it is possible to be enlightened. It is possible to taste the heavenly gift. It is possible to partake of the Holy Spirit. It is possible to taste of the good word of God. It's possible to taste of the powers of the age to come. And after tasting of all these things, it's possible to fall away. Now, to fall away is very clear English to mean that you were you were in something before, right? But you fell away. It says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Friends, what's going on here? First of all, how do you understand these few verses? Because theologians have different interpretations of it. But how... Do you understand these verses based on everything that we've studied in the book of Hebrews? What is he saying? What does it mean to fall away here? What does it mean that they tasted? Does it mean that they were born again, but they were not really born again? Or they were like, they were halfway through the process? Or is tasted the, the, the height of the experience that all of us have, in a sense? And why is it the case that it's impossible to renew them again to repentance?
3: Okay, I think they fall away is somehow synonymous to drifting we we're talking about before. Okay, but it seems like this one now is um, <laughs> worse than drifting, almost like backsliding. This is saying they can't turn away, they can't come back.
0: Yeah,
3: I think they fall away to renew them to repentance again. Like it's like they went above board so what comes to my mind, I remember the other time we are talking about, wasn't there a great musician that had sang and went back and started saying what he sang about wasn't true and all of that. So I mm-hmm. think that's like a clear example. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Yes. It's important to note that that everything that the writer wants about is a progression, right? So remember in chapter two, he warned against drifting. And drifting is that state where... You're hearing the word of God, but it's not changing your life. It's not, you're not allowing it to affect your heart. right? And then drifting, if it's not checked, eventually leads to doubting, where you begin to question the efficacy of the word of God, right? the authority of the word of God. And if that state of affairs continues, it then matures into dullness. Do you see? What began as drifting, we, we ended up in chapter 5 to see how it can lead to dullness of hearing. So that what dullness of hearing means is that when you when you some people who are Christians, when you preach to them, if you're not saying what they want to hear, you know, if you're not talking about milk, <laughs> right, if you're not saying what they want to hear, they're not going to hear it. And the way you're going to know is that they'll be they'll be using their hallelujahs to tell you. Right? They can they can jump and shout when you say certain things, but they are, they are, they are, they oppose you when you say some other things, essentially. You become controversial for saying certain things that are true. That's dullness of hearing.
2: Sorry, Josh. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Josh. Sorry. This thing you're talking about is a pandemic. <laughs>
0: okay.
2: I, I just thought actually, just, you know, because.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm just worried about the it's, word it's, impossible. Impossible. That is, there's no chance of them getting any form of forgiveness after they have turned away right
0: that was one of my questions why why is it so intense like this
2: okay i was i was about to um, talk about that that's why i pointed at the pandemic team first because mm-hmm. uh, you know from this whole thing you've explained point by point i said it's a pandemic because it's a huge issue It's massive around us it is one of the reasons why we have the mammoth crowd of people who prefer certain quarters and certain places because they just want to keep hearing this they don't want to hear anything else mm-hmm. and um if i would if i would ex- uh, give a very simplistic i hope it's not over simplistic but mm-hmm. a simple perspective to this is that's impossible i am I'm seeing that impossible not in the side in on the area of the lord but impossible on the area of the person mm-hmm. because Having the idea is this these are these things you taste are things that the more you taste them the reality of God and his love and his kingdom becomes more vivid and more clear to you and mm-hmm. so you experience this reality you experience it you see it and then you consciously reject also mm-hmm. somebody who has rejected something it is impossible for the person to turn around and reaccept it I think that's what for me, that's what I'm deducing from this concept. Mm-hmm. So it's almost it's almost likened to the, the devil's experience himself, you know, the devil having to reject all that he has seen, you know. So it's not as if God cannot forgive him, it is just that it is impossible for him to return because he has outrightly rejected all that he has seen. Mm-hmm. But I may be wrong,
0: I just no. totally. You're, you're you're correct like with these things there are always two sides to it right there's a side of the of the apostate because that's what's happening here that's what's been described the apostasy there's a side of the apostate and there's a side of god so what you described is the side of the apostate and it's something we hinted at when we did hebrews chapter 3 right that's emphasized on doubting remember yeah. when we pointed out what jesus said that Take heed to the light that you have, lest the light you have becomes darkness. And we said this is part of what the wrath of God means, that if God gives me light and I repeatedly fail to to respond to the light, I'm going to arrive at a place where I can no longer respond to it. The light I have becomes darkness. That if I fail to act on truth without God intervening, truth will, will stop impressing my heart. That's what happens to a terrorist mm-hmm. or a serial killer. Now the first time they killed somebody, it 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 yeah. was it was a big issue. Right? And they did it long enough till their conscience was reconfigured. And it says that if you if you mm-hmm. manage to to walk in the fullness of the light of God and then allow yourself to drift far enough, or the church allows you to drift far enough to the place where you renounce the things that you have said that even in your own the way you are wired it is impossible it will take another <laughs> to take another intervention now this is not talking of a christian that even backslid right or a, or a christian that um is going through through a dry patch oh, or a lukewarm patch Jesus. this is not the case this is one that has rejected the faith. He says that from your end is impossible but of course, we know that with God, all things are possible. But he's saying that with even on God's end, it's impossible because that position has created a legal problem. That's what he's referring to in verse 6, right? That the, the reason, because because repentance is a gift of God, and if it's a gift of God, it means God can grant it. But the reason why he's not going to grant it in those cases, remember we said that if God permits, so... Which is why it is not wise for a Christian to play with sin, because you, you don't know at what point God will decide to not permit anymore. But it says that yeah. there's, a legal, there's a legal problem, that you crucify again for yourself the Son of God, something that God does not tolerate, like he didn't tolerate it with Moses when he struck the rock the second time. And you put him to an open shame. This is explicated for us in Hebrews chapter 10, which we are going to come to in the next three or four weeks. Right. He says, for if verse 26, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there's not, there remains no other sacrifice. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things that made John the beloved to say that he that is born of God does not sin. In first John mm-hmm. chapter 3, he said that for this reason, for this reason, this is Jesus was his his table was full in heaven. He had so much to do, but for this reason. He came that he might destroy the works of the devil. And then the works of the devil, like we know, is sin, right? So if a believer arrives at the place where they allow Satan, the world and circumstances to convince them that it is impossible to live above sin, they are saying that what Christ did is not enough. And the the writer of Hebrews is saying that if you say that Christ is not enough, there is no other sacrifice that remains. There's there's no story that is better. Right? There's no initiative that is superior. There's no priesthood that is superior. And it's necessary for us to see that this is the argument that he's making. Right? Um, in verse 29, he lists the three or four count charge. That is a legal problem. Why? It is impossible. It says of how much worse punishment do you suppose Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? That's the first count charge. Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. That's the second count charge. And insulted the Spirit of grace. You know, it was John, the beloved, who told us that there's a sin that leads to death. And he told us that if somebody sins that sin, that don't, don't bother to pray. All right. The thing that listed that that there are many things to pray about, but I won't leave it because it has become a legal issue. How can someone who tasted friends? I want us to, to just pay attention to this as we go back to Hebrews chapter 6. How can one who tasted of the heavenly gift, that is the gift of the grace of God, someone who partook of the Holy Spirit, right? Someone who tasted the good word of God someone who touched the powers of the age to come right. how can such a one fall away
3: i think when you're dead in your conscience at some point like you said it starts gradually from drifting mm-hmm. then your conscience becomes dead at that point there's really no there's really nothing that can call you back
0: mm-hmm. yeah and in the context of Hebrews chapter 5 thank you God and in the context of Hebrews chapter 5 and 6 the writer is saying that part of what can lead to such a state is when we refuse to go into maturity right when we insist on milk and stay around milk and just because the things around maturity are not favorable to our flesh you know John said in his in his gospel that uh, this is the record that the light came into the world, but, but men loved darkness. Just in case we love our darkness so much that we don't want to go into maturity, just in case we only like pastors that keep us in the same spot, ministries that keep us in the same spot. And, there is not, and we don't like anything that indicates that we need to go forward, that it is possible. I don't want us to take this for granted, friends, because... Like we're going to see subsequently, the writer is saying to them that, I know that this is not your case, but I'm highlighting it to you to show that it is a possibility. But I want us to spend the next five minutes just reaching out in your spirit to anyone that the Holy Spirit has placed in your heart or places in your heart who is in need of prayer before it is too late. You know, it can even be somebody you don't suspect, right? Because when drifting starts, it looks normal. Ah, the person doesn't like coming to church anymore. Maybe he comes once a month. But where Satan is headed with drifting is that they arrive at this place. But you see, this is, why, this is part of why we are, we are priests in the priesthood of Christ, so that we can stand and insist and, and, and cry before the Lord that these ones will not be lost. So I just want us to pray for the next five minutes as the Holy Spirit puts people in your heart and say, Father, let your hand be stretched forth in mercy and quicken my brother again, quicken my sister again. Deliver this one from the deception of the age, from the deceitfulness of riches, from the cares of this world. Bring this one back to the first flame, that first fire that burned in their heart Let them know you again. Let them hear your voice again. Let them taste again the sweetness of fellowship. I ask that you intercept this one, Jesus. In the midst of the plans that they've made for disobedience, I ask that you intercept them according to your mercy. I stand on my priesthood, which you so benevolently gave me. And I ask that you intervene in the life of this one. Can we just pray and say, Lord, intervene. Yes, Lord, intervene, that none of us will turn our backs on you, that none of us will be lost permanently. Yes, you said concerning your disciples, that of all that you've given me have lost none, except the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And so this is the cry of our hearts, that none will be lost, O God. Remember, remember, remember. Remember Silo Kabediatana. Oh, Shalababarakas kovelendis Bayatas Kambo Rebediatala. Remember my brother, remember my sister. Remember this one that has come under intense pressure. Remember this one that Satan seeks to draw away. Remember this one that is on the brink of giving up, that is on the brink of losing heart. And draw them back, draw them back, precious Father. Let none in our families be lost, O oh God. Let none, let none, let none in our space be lost. Let the spirit of encouragement rest upon them right now. Let their plans for iniquity be intercepted. Let their slippery paths, O God, be intercepted by your grace and by your mercy, Jesus. Let their destinies in you be recovered. For the scriptures say that it is your will that none none should perish, but that all should come to repentance and to the knowledge of you. Restore, Jesus, Jesus, kabendos restore that one restore that one father restore that one who is contemplating suicide restore jesus restore let your hand intercept <laughs> oh let your mercy let your mercy surround that one. The Bible says that the Lord surrounds the righteous with favor as with his shield. Let the war that the enemy has waged against that soul, let it not prevail, Father. In your mercy, redeem. Redeem. Yes, even where grace has been abused repeatedly, we cry out O oh God for your mercy. We cry out for your mercy. El Sanda. sander. have a light Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, Anyway, just to conclude verse 7 and verse 8, it says, For the earth which drinks in the rain, which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, and bears... Herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if he bears tons and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. This is a reminder to us that Jesus asks us to take responsibility for the state of our hearts. Right? When he in, the, in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, the sower was faithful to sow the seed of the word. But the sower acknowledged that. This, some of these things are going to fall by the wayside, some by, on stony ground, some on thorny ground. But he wants us to realize that what our preoccupation, our preoccupation should be to cultivate our hearts. I want to be the kind of person that knows how to receive the word of God because that's how my seasons of promotion will come. That's how my seasons of growth will be announced by the word of God. I, I don't want to be the believer that, that is static in my faith that just is content with where I am I want to have a heart that is ready at all times may the lord help us to take full responsibility of the of the texture and the state of our hearts in the name of Jesus amen amen okay um can you read for us then Stephanie from verse 9 to verse 15 let's get that far 9 to 15
1: Okay, from verse 9, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, Mm -hmm. things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater he swore by himself saying surely blessing I will bless you And multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. Right. So the writer is saying that I don't expect that this is going to be your end. And I'm saying to all of us that I don't expect that this is going to be your end. It's just necessary that we understand things from their eternal perspective. And we always have the eternal perspective in view. Right, beloved we are confident of better things concerning you yeah, yes things that accompany salvation even though we speak of this manner why is he so confident that the people he's writing to will not end like this the reason he's confident is that he there's an investment that god has made in them right that is going to make it possible or in their own case impossible for them to follow away. look at verse 10 He says for god is not unjust to forget your work And labor of love which you have shown towards his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister now in the old covenant when god gave the law it was up to you to keep the law right the bible says that whoever does the law shall live by them so whether you lived or you died was up to your ability to keep the law and needless to say it was a system that didn't work out the law itself was 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 flawless because it unveiled The nature of God, it unveiled the holy character of God. But the people to which it was given had limitations. And the core limitation of man, of you and I, is sin. So the system of the law does not work because the law says this is the standard of God. right? You have to keep it to have life with God. Now, what changes in the New Testament is not the standard of God. And it's necessary for us to emphasize this because when John was speaking about the fact that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Christ. You can see that truth is still in the equation in the new covenant. It's not the standard of God that changes, it's not the expectation of God that changes, it's not the law of God that changes. If anything, if anything, friends, the expectation of God on our lives is heightened because of the new covenant arrangement. What is the new covenant arrangement? The new covenant arrangement is the arrangement of grace, right? That And grace means that God is at work in you. It is on the basis of grace that you can work out certain things. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, that I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you. So God has rigged the system, if you like. He has found a way... <laughs> To yoke himself with you. He has found a way to make you a fellow partner in his business. Right? He has found a way to partner with you in the business of in the business of life. And so when God works in you, it is the working of God in you that then produces good works on the outside. So look at what he says about these Christians, that God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. So God worked in you. So that you can produce good works and then he rewards you for doing those good works how amazing is that that he works in us so that we can work out and the reason he works in us is so that he can reward us and when god rewards he's not unrighteous in his rewards you see god wants to reward you and i for our faith he wants to reward you and I for obedience. He wants to reward you and I for our consistency. But he wants to be righteous when he does it. Right? And when we say reward, we need to have the right orientation of what reward is here. He wants to cause more of the fullness of his life to be on display in our lives. That's what reward is, that, that more of God will be visible in my life, in your life. God wants to bring that into our lives. He wants to reward us, friends. It's necessary that we note this and we have it, that God wants to reward me and he wants to be righteous when he does it. He wants to reward me, but not just because he he, he emotionally, you know, wants to prefer me above somebody else. But he wants to reward me and say, hmm, Joshua deserves to be rewarded. And how does God uh, make that happen? He, He provides grace provides energy he provides life he provides the impetus he provides the strength so that if you descend that no it is god who is who is steering me to fast in this season right or it is god who's steering me to study in this season it is god who's steering me to pray it's not as though you made plans to do it all of course they are the ones you make plans to do but when you realize that god is at work he's he's making me pray he's he's precipitating prayer in my spirit, and you align with what God is doing, the outcome will be reward. You know, the writer told us in chapter 4 that we need to labor to enter God's rest. God does not leave us alone in that labor. He energizes us for that labor. He energizes us by the effective working of his spirit so that he can reward, reward us. And I always tell people that grace is a multi-dimensional reality right there is the there is the first dimension of grace there is there is the dimension of grace which is most commonly known right which is the entry point of grace and it, the way it's defined is that grace grace is the over overflowing kindness of god and it is correct to say that that grace is the overflowing kindness of god grace means that we didn't merit anything we didn't deserve it, but God himself came into the picture, right? That's the first definition of grace, and that's correct. That's the basis of our salvation, for by grace you were saved. And grace there is the overwhelming kindness of God. Before we knew that we needed salvation, God, in his over- overwhelming kindness, overflowing kindness, he initiated the process. But you see, anything that proceeds from God is as deep as God, Right? So there's another dimension of grace that you will need to know if you're going to go on to maturity. And that is that grace is the inner working of God in a man. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter three, when he was speaking about how he went from, from, from a murderer to an apostle. He says, to me, this grace was given. And eventually in Paul's life, he couldn't even separate what was his own ability from what was the spirit's ability because it was mingled together. He said, I began as the least of all the apostles, yet I labored more than all of them. But I noticed when I took stock that it was not me who was laboring, but it was the grace of God in me who was laboring. There is a dimension of grace that enables us to labor into our rest so that God can bring us reward. Right? And verse 11, he says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the, until the end. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. If you notice in the writer's um, thought, thought line here, he's saying that the Hebrews is writing to, they've received genuine faith. That faith was evident in their good works right and the highest form of the good works of faith is love right genuine love the love that that is the way Christ loves um, the love that gives itself fully that's what he said in verse 10 that God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love and you see anytime it is that you see a believer who who has genuine love then you know that faith the faith in them is also genuine. And then the question is, if there is faith and there is love, what is missing for maturity, right? And it tells us that the answer is hope, the full assurance of hope. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that a threefold cord is not easily broken. And this is where we're getting to the meat of tonight. So we begin to round up. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 12. It says, though one may be, op- may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. If your fate is going to endure, it needs to be formed by a threefold cord. There needs to be faith, right? There needs to be love. But the thing that completes that circle is an unwavering hope. It is hope that makes your faith complete. It is hope that makes your faith perfect. And then the question is, what is it about hope, therefore, that completes your faith? Going back to Hebrews chapter 6. He right. says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope. What is it about hope that completes our faith? Why is hope so necessary for our faith and our work of love? We we answered this question a little, if you remember when we did Colossians, right? Hope hope purifies. Can you expand more? Hope purifies, how?
2: Okay, um, I'm trying to use a context that I try to condense it so fast. Okay. Um, Ultimately, the the most tangible expression of our hope is is, um, the hope or or the hope in the return of our Lord. the the, The hope in the promise of his return. The hope of total that's total salvation of our whole being, you know. So not just our spirit, not our soul, but also our body as well being redeemed. And understanding that this promise um, requires a certain alignment, or will I say um, compliance. And the constant, um, pardon me, the constant um, consciousness of this hope, constant uh, having this hope or this promise constantly in view um, is what fortifies and like purifies the person causes the person to be
0: um, it purifies your focus mm-hmm. it's, yes the focus exactly yes it thank straightens you. out your focus okay thank you sammy what we did say when we did the book of um colossians is that the quality of your hope friends The quality of my hope, of our hope, is what is going to determine the longevity of our faith. How far will your faith go? How far will it go? That question will be answered by the quality of your hope. And the quality of your hope is determined by the object of your hope, which is why if 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 you bring somebody to Christ with a false hope, you know, the hope of breakthrough, or the hope of whatever hope that is outside of Christ, that is not anchored in the person of Christ, their faith will not last the distance. Their faith will not have longevity, because one of two things will happen. They are going to get their breakthrough, and then realize that breakthrough is not the end of life. And then realize that your gospel was false. Or they are not going to get the breakthrough and discourages and satan will visit them with discouragement because hope what did the say about hope that 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 does not come <laughs> it makes the heart weary right the longevity and the quality of our faith is tied to our hope in fact our ability to press into maturity is tied to the hope we have if the hope you have is that is that your current Status is the best that God had for you, then it's going to, you are going to become sluggish. That's what it says in verse 12, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience and inherit the promises. Faith, by its very nature, friends, is going to be tested. That's how faith is. Faith will be tested. It's not a prophecy. That's just the nature of faith because faith is relying on the work of another. Right? So if it's not you that's doing the thing, if it's not you that is running helter-skelter to ensure that, that everything is in place, if you are depending, then the very nature of dependence is that it will be tested. Maybe you are trusting in God to speak to you about your marital destiny. That trusting will be tested. And you see, it's the testing of faith that purifies it, that makes the faith true, that makes it genuine. Because it's in that testing that we know where the where the faith is anchored is the faith anchored on god or is it anchored on the things that god can give and the ones who have gone through that purifying of faith their their faith is most precious to god that's why it's not faith like the teaching of faith is not complete if we do not add patience right and patience is the twin of hope patience is is, is triggered by the hope we have in our hearts. That no matter what it is that God has placed before you, it's likely that you may have to wait for it a little. It's not the case that everything that God has spoken concerning you, everything that God has said concerning you, is going to pan out tomorrow or next week, even though that's how some people prophesy. right? It is more likely that if it is fate, it will be tried to be tested because another person the one you are trusting the one on whom you are resting is at work behind the scenes he's the one working he's the one changing everything and you need to be patient and you see there's no timeline for patience the thing that god gives you is his peace you know when god gives you peace on the inside the outworking of that peace on the inside is patience sorry on the outside is patience Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, prayer and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God. A believer who does not know the peace of God, does not know how to contact the peace of God, does not know how to live in the peace of God, will not be able to add patience to their faith. Friends, I hope that there are certain things that you're trusting God for that your bank account cannot do for you. Right? that your natural intellect cannot do for you. I really hope that your faith is continually stretching onto God. But I also came to tell you that if it is true that there are those things, maybe there's a level of anointing that you're trusting God for and you have done everything on paper. <laughs> That's supposed to don't be done for that level of anointing or breakthrough to come. And it has not come. You need Patience. And for you to have patience, you need the peace of God. For you to have the peace of God, you need to have a hope that is a hope whose quality is beyond anything that is earthly. Look at what it says in verse 13. It says that when God made a promise to Abraham, which is a promise of blessing his seed, because he could swear by no greater one, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing, I will bless you multiplying i'll multiply you and so after he had patiently endured he obtained the promise right so the question here which we're going to see in verse 16 17 and 18 is that why does god need to swear because in verse 18 is going to tell us that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for god to lie we might we might have a strong consolation and the two immutable things are the counsel of god the counsel of god is the decree of god God can come to you and say, Stephanie, in blessing, I will bless you. If God says it, he operates in an energy level that the word tr- itself travels and all of creation hears it and begins to work in your good. Why does God then need to swear? Why does God need to swear? After he has spoken. Or rather, let's put this in context. Why did he need to swear to Abraham? And why does he want you to know that he swore to Abraham? To seal the hope. To like to exactly. establish a hope for Abraham to hold on. Exactly. He, he wants you, because in human terms, hope refers to something uncertain, Right. In human terms. Because it's necessary that when you define hope, you you separate the human definition of hope from what God is talking about when he talks about hope. Yes. When we talk about hope yes. in human terms, we are saying that we are not sure, but we are sure of waiting. <laughs> when, yeah, when God yeah. speaks about hope, he knew that because this process was by faith, Abraham's faith was going to be tested. In fact, it had already been tested and it was going to be tested some more. He knew that there was going to there was there was a need for patience, right? He knew that there was going to be a need for him to find an anchor between what God has said and his physical manifestation. And so God swore and said, "See, let my swearing be an anchor that you can hold on to. Meaning that the quality of hope is determined by the quality of the one who promised, right? Or another way to put that is to say this is where we're concluding right that the quality of hope is determined by the quality of the object of our hope so that if the object of my hope is god himself then i can hold it even though i don't see it even though i don't feel it i can hold it and press on the bible says that christ in you is the hope of glory that the object Of my hope, of your hope, is Christ. That what Christ has become in the heavens, you and I will become in the heavens. That the authority that Christ wields today in the heavens has been administered to you and I. So that even though for some reason that I'm not able to explain, I may not see that level of authority, but I see Christ. I see Christ. Christ is our hope. And I, and I hope that Christ is also your hope. And as much as you hope for breakthrough, as much as you hope for abundance, as much as you hope for a fresh anointing, I hope that Christ is your hope. And that in the midst of everything that you do, that you make certain Christ in your heart. Because Christ in you is going to be the hope of glory. Okay? So, can you read the final verses for us, Stephanie? Verse
1: 16 to 20. 16 to 20. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus, God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek.
0: Thank you. Right? We have explained the first three verses of this final five already. Right? That God did not need to swear, but he was determined to show that his promise to Abraham was immutable. What the writer of Hebrews is eventually trying to show us is that He's he's now slowly getting back to his comparison of Christ with the priesthood of Aaron. He's trying to show us that he has shown us already that all of us need a high priest. Right? We need one who can stand in the gap in the middle for us, the one that we can come to repeatedly, and we can come to that one with the confidence that he knows what we have been through, what we're going through. He understands. He also wants us to come with the confidence that <laughs> he is capable of helping us through whatever it is that we're going through. That the promise that he makes to us, the promise of salvation, is not one that he's going to abandon along the way. And that that hope is supposed to be an antidote to apostasy. That he made a promise and he swore by himself so that the hope we have, the hope that he set before us, is one that we can lay a confident grip on. You know, we said before that the, the main reason we need a high priest is because of the problem of sin, right? That if we take our, our physical definition and apply it to the spiritual, that underneath the surface of life there's the problem of sin. Sin is a legal issue, and that's why it, it persists. Legal problems don't go away quickly, especially in the spirit. And that sin is what introduces miseries they are miseries of sin, they are distresses of sin. those distresses can can be can be can be physical in terms of physical ailment. those distresses can be emotional in terms of guilt and shame. There is nobody under the face of the earth that doesn't deal with the miseries and the distresses of sin. sometimes those distresses of sin can just be the. <laughs> it can just be the warring of temptation in your soul. You know, you're just going your way and serving God, but there's a, there's a principle in your flesh that is that is resisting you, right? That is pushing you back. The writer wants us to know that there is a priesthood in the heavens. That's where chapter 7 will pick up from from next week. There's a priesthood in the heavens that we can anchor our souls upon. And the purpose of an anchor is to keep you stable, sure, and steadfast. If you don't find stability, you cannot grow. Right? That was the curse that Jacob placed on Reuben. He says, unstable as the wind, you cannot prevail. That was all he said to him, that your curse is that you will not be stable. You you will be like a wanderer. You will be like a stranger. You will not have a base for life. You know, some people, if they don't, and this is not in any way to, to um, downplay what they are going through. But you know, some people cannot practically live without a psychologist. And the advice the psychologist offers them. That's their, that's their base for their physical life. He's saying to us that all of us need a base. We need a high priest that is a, that is a sure and steadfast base. Lamentation says that his mercies are new every morning; that his mercy there is as sure as the rising of the sun. And if I wake up tomorrow morning and I call upon him, there will be showers of mercy. And he says, "I want you to build your life on this certainty. We have this hope. We have this priesthood, which enters the very presence of God." Ah, this book gets beautiful from chapter seven we have this priesthood that enters the very presence of God and that the one that we are following, the forerunner, he has entered for us and he has become our high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. If we understand the role of our high priest, the presence of our high priest, the power of our high priest, our lives will become secure. It's not the kind of security that is passive, but when you wake up in the morning, you will not need motivation to pray, right? If if you want to do a video, you will not need motivation for it because there is a high priest. There is an open door. There is, there is everything that you need is locked up in another dimension and you are just words of prayer, words of worship, words of fellowship, away from accessing help in every moment of need. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, it is sure, it is steadfast. And my prayer for us tonight is that we will plant our feet, not on on riches, not on honor, not on the honor of men, not on the glory that fades, not even on our natural beauty. No, no, that we will plant our feet upon the hope that is in Christ Christ.